Barefooting with Sierra uses Buzzsprout. Just start with the equipment you already have and a quiet space. Add Buzzsprout and your podcast is ready to go. You'll get a great looking podcast website, audio players that you can drop into other websites, detailed analytics to show how people are listening, tools to promote your episodes, and more. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners. Following the link in the show notes lets Buzzsprout know that I sent you, gets you a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan, and helps support the show. The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout and get your message out to the world. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of Barefooting with Sierra. This podcast is recorded on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional ancestral land of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Ojibwe, and Nakota Sioux, as well as others for time immemorial. I also would like to acknowledge that this land is home to the Métis Nation of Alberta and that I'm a settler on this land. My name is Sierra Larson, better known as Barefoot Sierra. I'm a novelist, comic creator, and independent journalist. I use they, them pronouns, and I've been living without shoes since 2010. I created this podcast to keep my audiences in touch with all of my projects, to talk about things I care about, and to interact with the awesome people in my various professional networks. I'm going to break this podcast up into four parts, novels, comics, journalism, and barefooting, each representing a different aspect of my professional life. I'll give you updates on what I'm working on, let you know about any new works you can see, and keep you in the know about when I do free book giveaways on Amazon. In this episode, I interviewed Isaiah Hudson, host of the Southern Spectre podcast. Let's get started. First up, novels. In novel news, the New York Times put out a list of new horror novels to read for Halloween. On that list are The Last House on Needless Street by Catriona Ward, The Between by Tenan Arrive Du, Revelator by Daryl Grefgery, My Heart is a Chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones, The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell by Brian Evanson, Getaway by Zoya Stage, Where They Wait by Scott Carson, and The Death of Jane Lawrence by Caitlin Starling. They all sound amazingly creepy. I think the ones I'm most excited to read are The Between and Revelator. And if horror isn't your thing, maybe check out Five Decembers by James Kestrel. This story follows a detective who trails a murder suspect to Hong Kong a few weeks before Pearl Harbor, then ends up stranded in Hong Kong and becomes a prisoner of war when Japan invades. Through it all, he never forgets about the murder he has to solve. Five Decembers is available in hardback through Hard Case Crime. Now on to comics. Just a few more days of Inktober. I've almost made it. My favorite one from the last week was Loop. I drew a super cute possum with her tail in a loop. You can see a preview of that on, on my Instagram, World of Possums, and a full picture of that one all of the best ones only available on my patreon patreon.com slash possum pete in comics news denver fan expo which was canceled last year due to the pandemic is back under new ownership canadian-based fan expo hq which runs all the major expos here in canada edmonton calgary toronto brought back the denver expo and is bringing it back on a smaller scale than usual due to the ongoing pandemic Denver Fan Expo takes place October 29th through 31st at the Colorado Convention Center. Tickets are available at fanexpohq.com slash fanexpodenver. DC Comics introduced their first openly trans character, Bia, a black trans woman, in the first issue of the new series Nubia and the Amazons. Writers and creators Stephanie Williams and Vita Ayala stress that Bia isn't just a box to tick, 
but an important part of her community, just like black trans women are important in real life. All right, next up is journalism, which means it's time for my interview with Isaiah Hudson of the Southern Spectre podcast. Hi, Isaiah. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Please tell us a little about yourself, where you're from, and how you got interested in starting a podcast. All right. Well, like you said, my name is Isaiah. Uh, I am, I was born and raised right here in South Carolina and uh, grew up in a small town. And, you know, the South, besides the South being known for its food, uh, another thing that it's really just steeped in is strange tales and legends. And it's just amazing to me you know, because in my opinion, and uh, it's just that storytelling is like when you break it all down, it's the most basic form of communication. And before we had computers and records and books and things of that nature, that's how, you know, information got passed down from one generation to the next. And so over time, you know, eventually what got squeezed out, we're actually seeing remnants of that kind of stuff today with all these weird stories and tales and things of that nature. And it just, it's just um, amazes me how some of the things actually come out. And I actually got started in podcasting basically much like a lot of people uh, have today. I started mine during the pandemic. I have always been a lover of paranormal and true accounts of, of that kind of thing. And one thing I noticed was, is that the South is kind of being left out. You know, it would always, you know, especially South Carolina, we would, we would kind of get hinted around, but it never actually came about fully to us. We were never exactly in the spotlight. So I said, you know what? I said, I'm going to do my due diligence and follow through with this. So that's exactly what I did. I went out, got me a little microphone and I began recording and it's, it's kind of, it's not an over the top show or anything like that. I'm a solo host. So, uh, but yeah, I kind of dive into some of these strange tales and legends. And then, of course, including the South, I kind of venture out from there as well. I even throw in some true crime from time to time. So that, that's, that's kind of how all that came to be. Fantastic. And yeah, there's so many, so many stories, especially like South Carolina. I have an uncle in Sumter and he has so many stories about, just all these weird things that locals know about that you you don't really hear about in all these big documentaries that, you know, H.H. H. Holmes and Jack the Ripper and all these big famous crimes. But these small stories, they're fascinating. How do you find and select the stories that you tell? Um, that's a good question. Uh, usually, if it's anything that has, you know, really kind of piques my interest on it, I'll dive into it a little bit more. And if there's enough meat there to gnaw off that bone, then I'll just, you know, I'll have at it. I started when I first started the podcast, I, I went with what I knew. And so I kind of took those stories that were very familiar to me, ones that I had heard growing up, ones that have been told time and time again. And I just kind of kind of compiled my own little story out of it. You know, I, like I said, I dug into it pretty well. Yeah, I just kind of I kind of took it for what it was and kind of put my own little twist on it and, you know, packaged it and put it out there. So Was there anything specific that kind of triggered your interest in the paranormal? 
I wouldn't say it was ever really just one specific thing, but uh, going back to what I said earlier about it just being basic, simple storytelling, my grandmother, um, God rest her soul, she actually kind of drew that out of me, whether she realized she did it or not. She actually kind of drew that out of me and how that came to be was that, you know, she was uh, one of many siblings uh, and she used to tell me about the, the, you know, the times that they would have. I remember this one story because, of course, back then they would go to school really early in the morning because they had to walk because there was no buses. And then on the way back home, they would actually leave like midday because things needed to be tended to around the house. There was work needed to be done. And they, of course, had to come home to help. And so they would only uh, go to school about a half a day. And when they actually got back, like I said, they were they were put to work. One story that kind of stuck out in my head was the fact that she said along the way, because, you know, back then there wasn't many uh, paved roads. And so the road that they actually took to go back home, I remember her telling me that the wind started getting up one day and, you know, you could see the dark clouds coming up on the horizon and you knew there was a storm coming. Well, there just happened to be like an old shed off in the woods there where they were walking. And it had, of course, uh, fell down. It was pretty much demolished at that point. But the tin was laying on the ground. And as it was, the wind was picking it up. And it was tin rubbing on tin. And, you know, she she recalled it sounding like it was moaning almost. And she said it just freaked all her and her brothers and sisters out. And they just ran back to the house. And that was one of the very first stories that I can actually recall kind of being terrified of, you know, even though there was no real threat from the story or anything bad happening in the story, it kind of one of those stories that just really kind of made you feel a little uneasy. And it kind of it kind of grew from there. I've always been a fan of horror, horror films and things of that nature. And uh, I remember the very first movie that actually scared me because it was the very first movie I actually sat down and watched. And that was Nightmare on Elm Street Part Four. You know, I just remember being terrified of it. And of course, it just it, it stemmed from there. And uh, eventually, you know, I kind of got to looking at everything. I said, you know what? These people on this, you know, they're all on TV. It's not it's not real. <laughs> and so I just kind of kind of grew a, a bit of an affinity for everything. And I just kind of combined all that stuff together and being a child of the eighties, you know, it, uh, as I grew over, uh, grew older, I kind of, those little stories that I would hear, I didn't dismiss them, uh, as fast as I used to, you know, I kind of was like, you know, kind of make you think a little bit, scratch your head and say, you know, I wonder if this is, you know, if this is real, is this something, is this, uh, just, you know, some kind of some sort of a phenomena that everybody's experiencing, or was it just, you know, the town drunk was the only one to see it or, you know, started asking those types of questions and uh, it just kind of stemmed from there. And uh, yeah, I, I love to read as well. And so I love to hear these little, you know, off the wall stories like that. And over time, you know, certain stories kind of make their way into the back of your mind and just kind of settle down there in this, things that you end up carrying throughout your life. You just never forget about them. For sure. So you mentioned the, the, the movies, they kind of, you know, <laughs> as a kid, you know, they're, they're not real. And you know that, have you had any experiences with paranormal that have been real? 
I don't really know because, you know, the paranormal draws on a very thin line and depends on who you're asking, who's looking or who's listening depends on if they will answer that question. Yes or no, or, you know, how they will answer that question. Yes or no. And so with that being said, I've been doing my show now a little over a year. Most recently, I actually kind of did a little bit of a investigation. Now I'm, I'm no, by no means any type of paranormal investigator by any means, but uh, I do have a portable recorder. My children actually taught, taught me into going into a neighbor's house that they were actually watching the dog. And of course I had to go over there and, you know, make sure that they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. And so they kept claiming that things would happen when they would go inside. Like when we would pull up in the driveway, the outside light would be off or it would be on. And you could tell from the outside what lights were on and off. And then they would get inside and those lights were now off or they were on. And hey, this, you know, the front door, we shut this or we shut the back door when we left this morning and now it's open and so on and so forth. And so I actually, uh, and I kind of made it into my own, one of my episodes, but uh, I actually ended up catching some EVPs or what I would consider EVPs. Uh, of course, I got the, I always, I always get the, I get the hay, you know, coming out of it. And then there's one I recall where me and one of my son's friends were actually talking and we were the only two in the room and it's weird because it sounds like what would appear to be like maybe a very young child, uh, maybe in like bedroom slippers or almost flip flops. And it sounds like they're scurrying away from us. Now, the weird part about that is, of course, none of us in the house were actually wearing flip flops or bedroom slippers or any type of shoe of that kind. And like I said, this actually sounded like someone running and shuffling away from us. But once again, nobody was running through the house and nobody was wearing that type of shoe. So it was interesting nonetheless. And then I was actually another guest on someone else's podcast. And it was weird because just like me and you are recording now, she actually notified me and let me know. She said, I caught, we actually called an EVP during our, our, our recording. I said, really? And she said, yeah, I'm going to send it to you. So, so she sent it over and I kind of got to, you know, listening to it. And it's very, very clear. It sounds, it sounds literally like someone is right up next to the mic and it sounds like they're saying it's haunted. I know it sounds weird, but it sounds like a very, very young child. It's haunted is what it sounds like they're saying, in my opinion. Uh, it doesn't do it once. It, do, it does it twice. And as a matter of fact, it actually sounds like it's it's almost a direct copy of the first one. So what's weird about that is after she told me, because the service, uh, the streaming service uh, that we were using at the time uh, was actually recording on her end and on my end. So at the end of the recording, she got two separate tracks. The problem with that was for me, it was on my end of the recording. <laughs> and uh, what's weird about that is uh, I kind of got to talking about it in one of my episodes, but I kind of asked the question because I'm diving into things a little bit more. I'm looking at things from a different perspective. Now um, I'm talking about it more. I'm making it a 
you know, a, a part of my life even more? Am I opening myself up for things to occur? And so that's kind of where that all stemmed from. And I was just like, who knows? Uh, you know, around that time that we were catching those EVPs, some things started happening around the house. Nothing too, nothing by any means malevolent or too scary, I would call it. But I remember one morning, me and my wife, I was getting ready, I, you know, trying to wait out the alarm clock. But I remember one morning, it was very early, and we heard a lot, what sounded like a loud crash in our kitchen. It was so loud. In fact, it woke one of my boys up on the other end of the house. He got up and because I wasn't concerned about it, I thought maybe there were some dishes left in the sink and they had just toppled over. Well, he got up to go look and I was actually talking with him from me and the wife's bedroom. And the next thing I know, he said, there's nothing in here. I said, what do you mean? I said, didn't something fall in the sink? No, there's nothing in the sink. I said, okay. He looked around the kitchen, looked around that area, couldn't find anything. And then, strangely enough, we were getting a lot of uh, alerts and notification off of our back door doorbell. I'm like, maybe there's something there. Maybe there's not. But I'm just the type of person, you know, I don't really start thinking about things like that until I'm like, okay, what is going on? Well, why isn't the front doorbell doing this? You know, and I'll kind of start putting, if I can piece piece together some things, well, you know, it wasn't until around the time that we actually started catching these EVPs that we started hearing these sounds in the house. Maybe something's trying to tell us something. I don't know. So it just kind of, like I said, I'm just type the type of person that, okay, I've got part A, where's part B? So, and if I can't fit them together, you know, I just kind of dismiss it as, eh, Maybe it's just my imagination. For sure. I mean, I was always brought up not to mess with EVPs, not to mess with Ouija boards because it can open that door. Absolutely. I I grew up like kind of believing that paranormal experiences are, you know, for sure real, that ghosts and spirits and all that can interfere with this world. I've had experiences. My mom has had experiences. Like I lived in what I call a haunted house there was a the previous resident had died in the house and his mother had also died in the house my son was very young like i think about six months old and Mm. his white noise machine would turn on by itself and his bed would make itself so my goodness yeah (laughs) and then one day i just went in there and i'm just like i don't know if this is postpartum psychosis or what but you know like if you're a nice old lady ghost can you please stop because you're freaking me out and it never (laughs) happened after that so wow. I lived in a haunted house. It was, I, I did not enjoy it. You know, I like Stephen King books. I like horror movies, but you know, real life experience is different. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But you know, you mentioned a lot of, you know, you liked movies when you were a kid. Do you have mm-hmm. a favorite horror movie? Oh, that's a, that's a very tough question. I think that changes. Uh, you know, if somebody were to ask you, uh, what's your favorite movie of all time? Unless you are dead set on a certain movie, I think that kind of changes, especially like with me, because I love just a whole plethora of different movies and I'll get into different moods. So it depends on how I'm feeling that day or that time of the year or whatever. Uh, that that answer could change from one day to the next. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge Evil Dead fan. I, I love the Evil Dead. Uh, I think uh, Ash Williams is one of the best you know, horror movie 
characters to ever come out of of cinema and uh it's weird because uh he's just i don't know it's very campy horror but the thing about it is is because my well as soon as i saw evil dead 2 i was like okay we got the same character going back to the same cabin in the woods did we not learn our lesson from evil dead the way the final events of the movie play out and the way the beginning of army of darkness plays out is two totally different ways so i'm kind of curious did sam raimi kind of give us a multiverse without telling us about it interesting theory (laughs) <laughs> I, I love speculating about movies, but if we do that, we'll we'll go off on a tangent and never finish I understand. the interview. Yeah. Do you have a favorite haunted location? Ooh. That is mm. you know, there are several ones in the world, I would say, that I would love to pay a visit. One of them being, I wouldn't say it's haunted, but there is a lot of mystery that surrounds it and it the story goes about the lighthouse keepers that there was two or three of them there. And then they went to go kind of do a a shift change because, you know, nobody had heard from them at that point. And so they actually sent out one of the captains and one of the, the extra lighthouse keepers. And when they went back, nobody was there and they never discovered what happened to them. And I was like, that is just strange. It's weird. And I'm trying to think of the name of the aisle. But yeah, it, it, that that would be a place most definitely. I would love to take a haunted tour of pretty much all of England, uh, uh, England and Scotland. I just think those are beautiful countries unto themselves. But those places that I've actually been, as far as haunted location, I have a few around here that are local favorites, main, mainly because they are near my home. It's those things that I kind of grew up with. And one of those is the tomb of Julia Legree. And if you got time for a quick story, I'll be glad to tell you that one. Uh, So Julia Legree came from a very prominent family and Julia Legree's tomb is actually, or the Legree family mausoleum is actually uh, located on Edisto Island here in South Carolina. And, Years ago, you know, her family grew up around the area and they had a large influence around their surroundings. So she eventually, you know, of course, ladies married a lot younger back then. And so she was very young when she married and she uh, married a gentleman from Charleston and her and the gentleman from Charleston, her now husband, they actually moved to his plantation in Charleston. Uh, Now, during the summertime, uh, Julia would actually come to Edisto Island to visit with family. Now, one particular summer, she was out here and she started not to feel so well. And eventually what became of that is that she kind of slipped off, uh, slipped off into a coma. Nobody could really put a finger on what was going on with her, but they had the family doctor coming in and checking on her, you know, every other day or so and kind of keeping an eye on her progression. Well, then one day he comes in, he checks her vitals, and he pronounces her dead. Now, like I said, a lot of people have speculated over the years about what disease or what illness she had contracted to make her vitals drop so low that he could not detect them because they, you know, their instruments that they had back then were a far cry from what we actually have today. So, of course, back then, uh, when someone was pronounced dead, 
they actually would bury more often than not, they would bury their dead the same day because this was way before the days of embalmment. They prepared a funeral for her at the family mausoleum. They readied her body and they took her to the family mausoleum. There's a huge, if you go today out back, there is an actual mausoleum there and it says Legree on the back. And it's huge because it does not look like anything else in the cemetery. And that's just crazy because there is a ton of old graves there. And like I said, this one just kind of stands off to its own. When they pronounced her dead, they readied her her body for burial. They took her to the family mausoleum. They opened the door and they placed her inside. They shut and sealed the mausoleum door. Several months later, another family member of the Legree family passed away. So they did the same routine as well, and they went back, and when they did and opened the door, there on the inside of the door, they found young Julia's remains on the inside of the door. She had been buried alive. And yeah, I know it's kind of morbid, <laughs> but it, it it's it's sad, but I don't want to say in a good way because it's definitely not. But it is one of it, it's it's very tragic. It's 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 almost romantic, almost in a way, because the way that it's been reported that her that her ghost haunts the place is that she does not like the mausoleum door being shut. So after that time, when they arrived back and they found her remains, they took her remains and buried them again in proper fashion. They buried the other family member who had died as well. They shut and sealed the door. A few weeks later, uh, somebody was passing by. They noticed that the door was open. They sealed the door again. Another few weeks go by and the, the pastor there at the church, he notices the door is open. He shuts and seals the door again. Then another few weeks go by and they actually go back. Someone goes to pay their visits, uh, pay their respects, and they actually find that the door is now completely off its hinges and they can't figure out what's going on. And so over the years, they've tried to chain the door shut. They've tried different methods. They even went as far as constructing a whole new door so heavy that they had to bring in heavy machinery to install it. And after that door was installed, wasn't long after they returned to the cemetery there and they actually found the door completely off its hinges and laying flat down on the ground and shattered into pieces. And so they just say, you know, I've been there a few times and there is no door there. I remember years and years ago, you could actually go and they actually had the original door or the door there that had been smashed into bits off to the side. So you could actually see the door. Um, I'm not sure what happened to the door, but the door is no longer there. And I've heard people say they get a sense of like almost melancholy, sadness, even some claim to uh, sense, uh, get a sense of claustrophobia. And uh, I just think it's, I I don't know why. I just think it's a very romantic tale. You know, it's heartbreaking, but, It's like even this young girl, even after death, she still had enough life energy, life in her to take this door off that in life itself would have been entirely too heavy for her to move. And it's just crazy to kind of think about it that way. But I I don't know. It's just a story that I've always heard and, and I've always I've loved about it. 
like I said, I've been out there several times myself and I've never got a bad feeling from it. It's always, you know, kind of a peaceful, easy feeling, you know, almost and not to quote the Eagles, but it's, it's just, it's just, I don't know. It's very peaceful. It's very calm and it's a beautiful church and it's a beautiful cemetery. Then on top of that, you know, you hear stories about people who have come along over the, over the years and they go in groups and they, they kind of do their own little investigation and they take pictures. And then of course, as always with ghosts, they like to put themselves on camera. You know, they, a lot of people claim that they have found orbs or strange lights in the photo that uh, wasn't there when they took the photo, of course. So yeah, that's one of my, that's one of my favorite stories. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's, I have heard of that one. I um, haven't been there myself, but I have a whole list of, of haunted locations I want to go to. And I, I looked up that lighthouse that you were talking about and it's the Flannan Isles in yes, Scotland. That is it. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's been, it's been so great chatting with you uh, about, you know, your podcast and just creepy stuff. I love it. Where can people find your podcast and connect with you online? Well, my podcast is uh, pretty much on most major uh, podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple, Google. Um, but if you want to just reach out to me, it's anchor.fm forward slash Southern Spectre. And Spectre is S-P-E-C-T-R-E. Excellent. Well, thanks again for joining me, Isaiah. It's been great. Thank you, Sierra. Last but not least, let's talk about barefooting. My barefoot adventures this week involved another visit to the boyfriend's mom. I was out in the barnyard with shoes on last time we were out there, so I guess she didn't notice that when we showed up, I didn't have shoes on. But this time she said, and she said, oh, you're a barefooter? So was I when I was younger. And that was that. In barefoot news, health officials in Los Angeles are enlisting peer ambassadors to overcome vaccine hesitation among the houseless population. Here's the article by Emily Alpert Reyes in the Los Angeles Times. It was a familiar voice that coaxed Kimberly Conti to step out barefoot from the back of the hulking former bookmobile parked in an industrial corner of Lincoln Heights. Hey, what's up? It was Zach Gustine who used to park his RV on the same block. Have you gotten vaccinated already? He asked her. Do you want to? Conti shrugged. I don't really care, she said. That's how I was too, Gustine replied. But just a few hours earlier, the 42-year-old had gotten the Johnson & Johnson shot to protect himself against COVID-19. And now he was a peer ambassador talking to others about the vaccine. We bring it right to you, he assured her. It's super easy. Soon Conti had gotten her shot too and was joining Gustine and an L.A. County Department of Health Services team as another newly minted ambassador talking to her neighbors in tents and RVs on the next block. It's a simple and intuitive idea. People tend to listen more to those they know. So in L.A. County, health officials are enlisting people living in tents, RVs, and makeshift shelters to get unhoused people vaccinated against COVID-19. The fledgling effort, which launched in August, is being funded as a study through the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. A lot of people who are experiencing homelessness are not going to look at me or my healthcare colleagues as people who can speak to their experiences, said Chelsea L. Shover, a UCLA School of Medicine assistant professor and principal investigator for the study. It means more to have someone they've lived with and spent time with say, I got mine and it wasn't a big deal. Dozens of people have become peer ambassadors through the demonstration project, which compensates them to do the work for up to eight hours in total, providing $25 gift cards to stores such as Target's or Ralph for each hour worked. 
To be eligible, they must have a lived experience of homelessness. Most are currently unhoused. They work side by side with LA County Department of Health Services workers, sharing their personal experiences with the vaccine. The team also hands out snacks, water, and other critical supplies, including naloxone kits to treat opioid overdoses. If the people they reach on the streets decide to get vaccinated, a medical team is on hand to provide the shots. Peers are able to communicate with their peers and build trust at an exponentially quicker and easier rate than we can, said Jose Mata, a senior program manager with the County Housing for Health COVID response team. We've seen peers convince people who have told us no repeatedly. In one instance, Mata recalled, his team asked a group of men hanging out in the Lawndale area whether they were vaccinated. The men initially said yes, and his team moved on. He came back shortly to find two of the same men getting their shots after they had talked to a peer ambassador. Conti said she was more open to getting vaccinated because a friend was reaching out. Usually when somebody comes up and talks to me, it's not a good thing, if it's not somebody I know, Conti said. In L.A. County, homeless people have been less likely to get vaccinated against COVID-19 than the general population. As of late September, public health officials estimated that 56.7% of people experiencing homeless across the county were at least partially vaccinated, compared with nearly 78% of the broader population. More than 200 homeless people have died of COVID-19 across the county, according to the LA County Department of Public Health. Gustine said he hadn't bothered getting the vaccine before because he wasn't especially worried about catching the coronavirus. But when the Department of Health Services team showed up outside his RV, offering to bring him the vaccine, he decided it was kind of a no-brainer. A nurse in tomato red scrubs crouched next to him on the shoulder of Valley Boulevard and swabbed his upper arm for the shot. Afterward, when he was handed his vaccination card in a plastic sleeve, Gustine joked, this'll get me into any club in Hollywood or West Hollywood, right? I'm probably kind of a unicorn here, he said to the team afterward. Like, how many people do you actually get to take the vaccine? Every day is different, said Anthony Coleman, a community health worker who led the team around Lincoln Park, cautioning them to watch for protective dogs outside tents and RVs. One day we can get 100, the next day we might get none. Christine, who has worked at a radio, as a radio personality, had heard wild theories about the vaccines on the streets, stuff about nanobots that the government can somehow control you. He was already having trouble swaying others in his RV who were leery of coming outside. All of the people out here, basically, they're scared of any big institutions of any kind, he said. You're not going to undo a lifetime of that in like five minutes. Yet Shover found that many homeless people do want the shots, even if they haven't gotten them yet. In surveys of more than 500 people living without shelter in L.A. County in May and June, 36% said they were already vaccinated, 30% said they didn't want the shots, and 34% said they wanted to get the vaccine. And in some cases, Shover said a no today is really a not yet. Out of those who declined, more than half answered not yet or not today instead of never. One couple, seated side by side on chairs overlooking the train tracks, said they had tried to get the shots when the L.A. Fire Department was giving them across the street in Lincoln Park. They said we had to do it online and all that, Denise Lerma, 54, recalled. I said, but we're right here, said Paul Carrera, 62, who had been with Lerma for a dozen years. Lerma had ultimately gotten her first dose of the Moderna vaccine. She believed it happened when she was in a convalescent home, but still needed her second. Carrera didn't have one at all. A nurse ferried the shots over to them. At a tent draped in gray and blue tarps, Gustine stopped by to see a friend. You haven't had the vaccination yet? He asked the woman. Gustine let her know they had snacks and other things to give out, and added that if she got vaccinated, she would be a gift card 
there would be a gift card too. The County Housing for Health program relies on private funders, including the United Way, to pay for cards as an incentive for homeless people to get vaccinated. UCLA provides additional gift cards to compensate the ambassadors. Christine told the woman he had gotten the vaccine just a couple of hours ago. I wasn't even planning on getting it, he said, but these guys came, I did it, and it's fine. The woman decided to go for it. As they waited for the medical team to come over, they gabbed about things on the block, who had moved where. Soon the woman began calling to others on the street, Hey, you want to get a shot? Others on the block remained leery. At one point, Gustine said he was a little surprised that more people weren't swayed to get vaccinated when he recommended it. A Department of Health Services staffer reassured him it was like 10 times what we normally get here. Four people on the block had opted to get vaccinated that day after Gustine approached them, in addition to the four, including Gustine, who had gotten vaccinated in and around Lincoln Park. Shover said one of the big benefits of bringing on peer ambassadors is that they can say things to their friends and neighbors that wouldn't fly from health workers. She recounted a peer ambassador telling a friend, get out of my tent, don't come back until you get vaccinated. That kind of candid talk is already happening on the streets, Shover added. She pointed to a viral video shot on Hollywood Boulevard by local activist William Goode, in which a vaccination opponent with a megaphone on Hollywood Boulevard demanded to know why the homeless people around them weren't dead of COVID-19. Because I'm vaccinated, a man pushing a shopping cart shot back, punctuating the comeback with profanity. Shover already knew the man named Ray, who had gotten vaccinated through a Department of Health Services pop-up clinic. She reconnected with him, helped get him a phone, and gave him one of their caps, which reads, Ask me about the COVID-19 vaccine. An online fundraiser set up by Good and an assistant has since raised more than $30,000 to help him. People are already doing vaccine education, Shover said, so we might as well pay them for it. On October 18th, Chris Brannigan, in the, a major in the British Army, completed a 1,000-mile barefoot walk from Bar Harbor, Maine, to Raleigh, North Carolina. Brannigan was walking to raise money for his 9-year-old daughter, Hasti, who has a rare genetic condition called Cornelia Delange syndrome. Currently, there are no treatments for CDLS, which affects 1 in 10,000 people, but the Jackson Laboratory in Bar Harbor, Maine, is working on a gene therapy. The therapy will be most effective before puberty, so Brannigan is hoping to raise the remaining $2 million needed for research in time for Hasti to receive the treatment during that most effective window. He raised $125,000 during this barefoot walk. Cornelia Delange syndrome causes slow growth, intellectual disability, deafness, heart defects, and vision problems. I've included a link for the Hope for Hasti donation page in the show notes, as well as a link to that LA Times article about the Los Angeles Vaccine Hesitation Peer Ambassador Program. That's all for this week's episode. I'll be back next week with an interview with psychic Patty Negri. Thanks so much for listening in. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to sierrathebarefootgirl at gmail.com. Thank you to Legion X for my intro and outro music. You can find me on Twitter at Sierra Barefoot and on TikTok at Sierra is Barefoot. All of my books are available on Amazon and on my website, sierrathebarefootgirl.com. My Patreon is patreon.com slash possumpeat. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. Until next time, this has been Barefooting with Sierra.